Welcome to the Lapsus Lima podcast. Please support us by signing up for member-exclusive content at lapsuslima.com. Hello, I'm David Getson. In our previous episodes on Walter Benjamin, we declared our own cautious opinion that technology drives sociopolitical change while art follows in the wake, mirroring these transformations. How this process wraps around the vortex of revolution is a distinct question, somewhat like the relationship between squares and rectangles. All revolutions entail political change, but not all political change involves revolution. Architecture requires, and to a certain extent embodies, institutional support. Therefore, any type of so-called revolutionary architecture tends to come after the barricades are stormed. For those who would endorse such a pattern, in which artistic sentiment influences revolution, which then actualizes within architecture, examples can be found which at least seem to reinforce this argument. Jacques-Louis David's Republican sentiments, shown in paintings such as 1784's Oath of the Horatii, preceded the French Revolution, which, in turn, engendered the built works of 1794's Festival of the Supreme Being, a utopian attempt to fuse art, religion, and social utility. This pattern was echoed in Russia, with suprematism rising in advance of the 1917 revolution and the building and design workshops that so powerfully shaped the Bauhaus coming once the Soviet Union was established. However compelling these through lines may appear, though, zooming out even slightly spins the chicken-and-egg game of historical causality. Before the French Revolution, the financial crises following war debts and the economic philosophies of the physiocrats ramming into the resistance of the Ancien Regime had a broader societal impact than any artist could achieve. In Russia, where the emancipation of the serfs had only taken place in 1861 and under great duress, the modern forces of industrial economy and Western thought were straining the old systems of kulaks and princes. The Russo-Japanese War's disastrous outcome prompted the abortive revolution of 1905, consolidating Bolshevik and other political resistance. An analysis much clearer and perhaps more productive than haggling over primacy of causation between socio-economic substructure and artistic architectural superstructure is examining how artistic ideas within the relatively more autonomous realm of painting and the plastic arts project into architecture, which then, however diffusely, cycles these ideas back into socio-political built fact. Whether there is causation or mirroring 
the mutual influence is ever-present. Like the French Revolution put a painter in charge of experimental architecture, the first professors at the Bauhaus were, again, all painters. Through the indirect influence of suprematism, constructivism, and the eventual presence of suprematist painter L. Lissitsky, the Russian Revolution came to decisively inflect the direction the Bauhaus would take. But this kind of rapid change that found such sympathy with the reform-minded individuals of modern architecture does not happen all that often. It is usually the symptom of a once-stable form of life that's been displaced by newer systems. If the advantages of the old ways are no longer recoverable, and its methods are being resisted, this can create visible gaps between the honored past, mythologized or not, the abhorrent present, and the yearned-for future. Revolutions tend to not take place in the most advanced societies, nor in completely backward ones. Instead, whether it was in relatively progressive 18th-century France, in retrograde 20th-century Russia, or even amidst the forces of a conservative revolution like that of the Thirteen Colonies, it was the emergence of a new class accelerating faster than its surrounding power structures which lit the fuse. Despite the stark differences between these three revolutions, two salient affinities stand out. First, these new classes were sidelined by the existing power structure, whether it was the landed gentry and the merchant classes in 1776, the bourgeoisie in 1789, or industrial workers in 1917. Second, each emerging class, after the intractability of the regime was established, violently sought the restoration of liberties that the ruling parties obstructed. The American Revolution demanded the recognition of local sovereignty. Between 1789 and 1794, its French counterpart went through a succession of revolutionary fits and starts that struggled to bring society closer to the primordial liberty of natural man articulated by Rousseau. The Russian Revolution's critical momentum, as distinct from the later dictates of the Politburo, was a demand and a promise for peace, land, and bread a social status quo antebellum. In all of these cases, a new class that desired power in order to restore values that the ruling class restricted took ferocious measures to establish them in what the circumstances dictated to be a new regime and the enormous distance one had to travel to recover a quality that was perceived as lost 
is often just what was needed to stoke the flames of radical reform. In the case of Russia, this desire to break out of the present into a future that carried dreams from the past was common to political economy and the world of art, while the great socialism of the future was to not outwardly resemble the past, the humble worker and the peasant were glorified. From a certain perspective, one could be forgiven for thinking that collectivist agriculture was a return to a pre-capitalist mode of production. And this does fit with the orthodox Marxist dialectical framing. If the past violently collided with the present, the future would be born. In art, a similar synthesis was taking place. Both Vasily Kandinsky and Malevich had their own artistic view to the past inspire a transformed future. In episode 23, we mentioned how Kandinsky felt transported to another world when surrounded by the bright colors on dark backgrounds in the magical houses of people still living in the old rural ways around Vologda in the countryside north of Moscow. While Kandinsky was, characteristically, struck by the color of the house decor and described the feeling as that of walking inside a painting, Malevich was first introduced to art in general by visiting peasant homes. He would become a far more ardent partisan of revolutionary change than Kandinsky, and understood these truly magical apparitions as symptoms of a deeper way of life, beyond and beneath visual production. We see here again, by the artist's admission, though maybe not in full awareness of it, a materialist sourcing of the influence of art, as Benjamin would later argue for. Malevich was born in Kiev in 1878, into a working-class family that had moved to the Ukraine after Poland had disappeared from the map in the partition of 1795. Because his father worked in various sugar refineries, the lifestyle and houses of the Kulak farmers would have presented a stark contrast to factory towns. The artist remarked on the difference which, in context, seems almost an indictment of his family as much as it was of industrial life. I had always been envious of the small holder who lived, or so it seemed to me, in total liberty surrounded by nature. The essential difference between the factory worker and the peasant is the latter's ability to draw. The former cannot draw. They cannot even decorate their own homes. They are not concerned with art. However, all peasants are. The whole of the countryside is interested in art. 
I was not familiar with that word at the time. It would be more correct to say that they made objects which gave me great joy. It was in these objects that the secret of my attraction to the peasant lay. I excitedly watched peasants painting on walls. I helped them plaster clay on the floors of their thatched houses and decorate their stoves. The peasants knew how to paint roosters, horses, and flowers devilishly well. It is the reclamation of this liberty, in a transfigured modern setting, that Malevich would spend his life struggling to attain. At the peak of suprematism, after years of work, he would once again produce plaster and kitchenware. Further distinguishing him from Kandinsky was how he eagerly got his hands dirty in the rural setting. While the great expressionist had visited Vologda as a young man to study the ethnic ways of the simple folk, Malevich looked up to the kulaks, calling them freeholders. While Kandinsky eloquently focused in on color as an instrument, expertly wielded by the peasants, Malevich went beyond the visual and beyond painting, even this early in his life. However, when he did narrow his focus to the study of painting, it was the strict imitation of nature that at first led him by the hand, but he would soon be shocked out of this balance. Despite the idyllic examples of rural craft, the Russian art world was not immune to the influence of Western European painting. Among Malevich's first patrons were the Muscovite art collectors Sergei Shukin and Ivan Morosov. Just ahead of the 1905 revolution, in which Malevich partook, Shukin purchased his first Cezanne, two works by Matisse and Van Gogh. The next year, Morosov brought in a painting by Signac. They soon had dozens of Fauvist, Post-Impressionist, and Cubist works. The collectors were happy to show these paintings to local artists, with Malevich being among them. The pace of change in those years, already dizzying to French and German collectors who had seen such pieces as they had come out, was intensely compressed as the stylistic development was seen all at once by Malevich. It remains impressive, though perhaps less surprising then, that he would perceive the momentum of the Kunstwollen away from pictorial depth and figuration and towards flatness and abstraction. Though he was observing all of this art at a time before Cezanne's name was etched into the stone of the art survey canon, it was that painter above all that he admired, even to the end of his life. In the last Russian-language article he ever published, he wrote, In the personality of Cezanne, our history of painting reaches the apogee of its development. 
in the history of modern art, Cezanne as the master of form and father of cubism is often held in contrast to Gauguin, seen as the master of color and father of expressionism, even though, as Kandinsky emphasized, there can be no color without form and no form without color. One or the other often takes precedence in an artist's work. Color tends to speak more directly to feeling than shape, so it tends to be favored by Expressionism. But one of the distinguishing points between architecture and painting is that the third dimension means that conception of form will often, if not always, take precedence over the conception of color. This focus on form was the key that opened the door to pure abstraction. And as Malevich perceived it, this handling of form was distinct from the novel shapes of the cubists or futurists. A painting's deviation from the appearance of a model was not, as such, an avant-garde pursuit. Deformation does not mean that the artist deforms the form of the object for the sake of a new form, but alters the form for the sake of perceiving painterly elements in the object. Malevich also dismissed the ideas that the new trends in painting were about a kind of neo-primitivism. He saw, even in his own earlier work, these simplifications as part of a move towards geometricization. The apparent primitivism in many contemporary artists is the tendency to reduce forms to geometrical bodies. It was Cezanne who called for and illustrated this process by reducing the forms of nature to the cone, cube, and sphere. By starting from Cezanne and moving into explorations of form, Malevich was far more disposed to consider architectonic qualities and architecture as such than any of the Expressionists. Even though Malevich never became a master at the Bauhaus, the ideals of suprematism, the movement that he founded, would, largely through his student El Lisitsky, fully displace the competing influences of other schools of art there. We would, however, argue that, far from representing a great triumph, this point of transition and transfer resulted in a loss in translation. Just as suprematism was not the confrontational fragmentary force of cubism or futurism, it was not the withdrawn Euclidean serenity of purism that Le Corbusier would practice and praise through cubes, cones, and spheres. The 18th century architect Ledoux wrote, Circle and square, 
These are the letters of the alphabet. It is easy, but incorrect, to imagine that suprematism is a 20th century echo of that sentiment. What it is, instead, is a thoroughgoing transformation of it. Lisitsky describes the efforts of the early years of the movement in Russia in these words. For us, suprematism did not signify the recognition of an absolute form which was part of an already completed universal system. On the contrary, here stood revealed for the first time in all its purity the clear sign and plan for a definite new world never before experienced. So even though the elemental shapes had been boiled down to square, circle, and cross, to understand suprematism as an assertion of the geometry we are familiar with is to misread it. As with revolutionary momentum, the coherence and values from an older and disrupted system were being asserted within a new language of power. Join us as we explore how Malevich passed through the singularity of the black square to emerge into a new dimension. Next, on Lapsus Lima.